Hello, everyone. I'm Al Daldegan, creator and producer of the Leaders, Innovators, and Big Ideas podcast, supported by Rainforest Alberta. This podcast showcases the people who are working to improve Alberta's innovation ecosystem. The host for this episode is Uriel Kararwa. Uriel is a program manager at Inclusity Calgary, an organization devoted to the inclusion of diverse and underrepresented voices in the design of technology. With a background in neuroscience, Uriel has been coordinating community events and working with neurodiverse groups in Lethbridge, and has spoken on the topic of atypical neurology on the TEDx stage. Uriel is always exploring opportunities to impact communities in areas like IDEA, social innovation and sustainability. Now let's join Uriel for his first episode in his BIPOC series with Jefferson Rock. Take it away, Uriel. Hi, everyone. I'm Uriel. I'll be your host today for the Libby podcast. I'm a program manager over at Inclusity Calgary. We help companies, nonprofits, startups, anyone really put people first as we design better technology solutions. So I've been listening to the Libby podcast and loved the Woman in Tech series. And I thought, hey, being a person of color myself, I'd love to get more representation and more diverse thoughts on this podcast. After all, Rainforest is all about diversity and equity and calling the calling out the elephant in the room and promoting diversity. So welcome to what is hopefully not, you know, a one and one and done episode, but a series of podcasts devoted to the BIPOC community. So what better way to celebrate diversity than to chat with some of the amazing BIPOC founders, investors, and ecosystem people that know quite a bit. And this is first episodes of this series. And my guest is none other than Jefferson Rock. Um, he's a person dedicated to making impact and revolutionizing the mental health field. We talk about his own uh, struggles and challenges with his mental health. And we also get to have a chat about what it is like to be a black founder in the Calgary tech ecosystem, among many other things. So I hope that you stay tuned and listen here. Enjoy episode one, the first of many episodes in the series, BIPOC Libby. Oh, and that's what I'll call it. Actually, I'm working on the name, but if you're interested to be on the podcast as well, please do contact us. And without further ado, here's the episode. Let's jump right into it. How, as a society, we we treat, let's say, shortcomings or failures is, is, is kind of, it's not doing us any good. You know, like Mm. you said, yeah, there's inevitably going to be some amount of, no matter uh, how good you are at something you're going to, or even to get to be good at something, you're going to need to fail at it. And, you know, what has your relationship been like with, with that failure as a, as a founder of a, I actually like how we started off this conversation because uh, it's coming to me now that at the core of my ambition and the work that we're pursuing is one theme that is being overlooked and that people are not trained to get better at. And that word is empathy. Mm. We do a very poor job at being empathetic towards ourselves. And as at being empathetic towards others and empathy is at the core of my business. I learned along the year and along that experience that it's okay for me to be where I'm at and not to hold myself to a high standard that is essentially a result of my own ambitions. Mm. But I think everybody's guilty of that. And we, we have to be okay with our shortcoming, with the learning phase, the growth phase, uh, the mistake that we make. Uh, but to your question, <laughs> I, use, um, I used to have imposter syndrome. Uh, in my career as a sales consultant, technology sales consultant, I've sold software for 15 years. And I did good at it because 
of my entrepreneurial nature, being very thirsty to address a given problem with the technology set that is made available to me. So it's never really about what can I sell? What is that problem and why is it bad? What are the results or the impact of that problem? And really being naturally curious to understand that experience from another point of view. Um, so the imposter syndrome is coming from the fact that I performed at that level with other more experienced individuals. It's coming from having to listen and ask questions to executives that are three times my age at the time. Mm -hmm. Two times my age, I guess, or one and a half. <laughs> but then being, you know, curious and, and naturally curious enough to ask the right question, even if they may sound ignorant at first, mm -hmm. but the response leads, you know, creates a path uh, to uncover solutions. So that, that, that imposter syndrome came from, stems from being in a space where I've always been working with people that are more experienced than me, people that are, that have done more, that, that have uh, degrees. Mm -hmm. I've been in a software space, but my background, my academic background is in accounting. I have no business being in that space. And once again, I'm in the mental health space with no, you know, psychology degree. So learned to make peace with myself and be empathetic towards the way I feel, which is what um, it put me on a different path. Um, I don't sometimes, you know, having a the imposter syndrome comes every now and then, but you gain confidence by learning from your mistake. You gain confidence by advancing your project, by achieving milestones, by pushing the business forward. So to your question, it's a long response, but I learned, uh, you know, to reflect on my mistakes, celebrating and rewarding my successes by talking about them. And this is, this is an exercise of mindfulness that I learned to do from my previous experience of, of, of dealing with depression, anxiety, which is at the inception of my entire business. The reason why I'm, I'm doing what I do is because I've been through it and it was bad mm -hmm. uh, and the experience sucked. Mm -hmm. It was isolating. Mm-hmm. And being obsessed with how this experience is affecting many people, but can also impact my kids. You know, it, it really light up a fire under me to go after solving this problem for not only for myself, but for humanity. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. So it sounds like giving yourself permission to be in these spaces, even though you might not feel in those moments like, you know, you're... You, like you belong or that you could even answer to, you know, some of these experts that you had mentioned earlier, but this feeling of like imposture, not feeling like you should be in a space or not feeling confident in oneself. You've over overcome many times over and, and are, you know, having to do it still continuously from the sounds of it being in this, in this new space. Yeah. Um, One thing I want to add to what you're saying is really uh, you can only grow when you're outside of your comfort zone. And I, I lived it, mm -hmm. you know, despite feeling like I don't belong. And this is a big one, right? We're, we're a minority. We're from the BIPOC community. Mm -hmm. That feeling of not belonging is like a shadow over our head, right? Mm -hmm. But um, um, what I meant to say is always putting myself, voluntarily always putting myself in these uncomfortable positions uh, generated thirst to solve it, it built, it fostered like the hunger, their hunger to prove that I can do it, right? And, and the growth happened because my success was celebrated, not by me. Like at the time where I was like my peak performance as a sales executive, I was top seven out of 120 reps across Canada for the company I was working for. And at some point, for three, for two years, I did not take any days off. I was just so passionate about doing what I was doing that for me, it was fun. And when the following year, when I would receive like my a vacation pay, I'm like, where is this money coming from? 
Then they were like, well, you didn't take vacation last year. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's true. Yeah. But uh, growth happened outside of your comfort zone. And, mm-hmm. and I guess I was, that growth fed my hunger. Just growing, consistently growing. So outside of your comfort zone is where you where you live. That's that's you know mm-hmm. your sweet spot. That's where you spend every day. And I think embracing that discomfort, I think, is is the key to yeah, really pushing yourself and and achieving things that you wouldn't think yourself to be able to achieve. So walk me through then, like how you know you have this in, insurmountable challenge of like you know life happening and your mental health wasn't the best at, at, let's say, your most difficult time. And out of it came, you know, this really great product that you're working on. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was, I guess, what is what is your, you know, story and how it relates to, you know, you being here in this booth with me today? Uh, yeah. Well, my, my experience happened way before COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, COVID, and there there may be a lot of people that will disagree, but for me, my experience with that era was a blessing in disguise. I know a lot of people were affected by by it, and I want to be empathetic towards COVID being devastating for some families. But for me, it kind of it was a different story. So before COVID, you know, mental health was like dust underneath the carpet. It was not something that one would acknowledge, especially me. I've been in a high-performing environment as a sales executive for most of my life. Every quarter, we have to account for the revenue that we're bringing to the company. Even if you meet your quota one quarter, the next quarter, you're a zero. You went from hero to zero real quick. There's an amount of stress that um, is that one can tolerate. There's an amount of stress that generate result, just like athlete, right? Mm-hmm. Before championship. Mm-hmm. But for me, you know, I've always managed that stress, uh, you know, in my ways. My coping me- mechanism was, you know, going going to work out, but I would never call it la- my coping mechanism back then. Mm-hmm. This was just part of the things that I do, uh, you know? So experiencing symptoms that I never had before was a new experience. It was uncomfortable. So I think it's a result of many changes that happen at the same time in my life from a personal standpoint, but also from a professional standpoint. I was doing great at my job. Uh, and often companies, when it comes to sales and business development, they're not as patient as they should be because working on a new account list, a new territory demands time. And sometimes the territory or the account list is not generating results as fast as the company would expect. And this was my situation. Mm-hmm. But uh, the result were coming uh, and result happened, unfortunately, only after I left. Right. So uh, after I was let go, per se. Oh, wow. Right. So mm-hmm. uh, that's tough. It was. It was because you work so hard to build momentum in your account list. And then you, you have a pipeline that you've been grooming. Mm-hmm. And they make forecast and provision, but you know, for companies, it's a numbers game, you know. So they pull the plug on you sometimes prematurely. Mm-hmm. So this is what happened to me. That mm-hmm. was one of the many elements that contributed to my stress and to my anxiety and to my depression. I also had a newborn. Mm-hmm. I had built a new house. I was in a new city, here alone, like no support system. Mm-hmm. I came here just. Being adventurous with my wife, we wanted to know and experience something different than mm-hmm. Montreal. Mm-hmm. We love Montreal. I have wow. Montreal in my heart forever. Great city. Great yeah. city. Awesome yeah. city. Yeah. But uh, people listening to this would be like, why would you move? To yeah, Calgary? shout out Calgary's Montreal. Great too. Yeah, Calgary is awesome. Calgary mm-hmm. is the place. It's a very good place for families. Mm-hmm. Not to say that it's Montreal is not, but you no, know, we found something that we like here. So, um, also under a lot of stress, you've just been laid off. Yeah. Um, in a new city, and newborn, huge back, <laughs> huge backyard project. Oh yeah, yeah. I was building a massive retaining wall because I had a huge slope in my backyard. Mm-hmm. So I brought in a company to do a ten foot high retaining wall, fifty five feet wide. So you know everything was contributing to stress. So mm-hmm. I have 
I didn't see it like that. For me, I would just like take one project, take another one. Okay, let's go. We got this. Mm-hmm. I got this. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But for four, three months, I was a victim of stress. And I couldn't put my finger on the source of that distress. I was mm-hmm. just living symptom after symptom, not acknowledging what was going on until I started, you know, losing focus, waking up in the middle of the night, having night sweats, having nightmares, fourth month, fifth month. And that's where it became alarming. And at the very same time, I know people that died by suicide, right? And, and these people were close enough to me, a coworker that I was building relationship with. We were becoming friends. After things, we, we, we did Thanksgiving together. We went for hikes. And by the time we got to November, a common friend told me that this person is not coming back. And at this very same time, um, some friends in our network of friends, uh, their eight-year-old son took his own life. Mind you that I was going through my own things. So... <laughs> I was here not understanding and seeing all these things happen. Mm-hmm. And then I remember a day, a Sunday after, you know, after backyard work, I was sitting on my driveway uh, thinking about all these things. And then it hit me very hard. I'm like, oh, it can happen to my kids. Mm-hmm. That's, that's where it hit the fan. Mm-hmm. And I actually started asking myself, you know, important questions. First, what's going on? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what's going on? Why is it that I'm not capable of speaking of this experience? The thought of my experience would bring th- tears to my eyes. Talking about it the following months would bring t- tears to my eyes. Mm-hmm. It took a long time for me to understand what was going on, to make peace with this, and to be able to talk about this. Because every single time I had to stop because my eyes would water up. Even now, I feel it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's, it's an experience that people go through that presses on them. So now being obsessed with this, again, my job as a technology sales consultant is to reverse engineer business problems and investigate on their ramification and how is it impacting different lines of business. Mm-hmm. So that investigative approach is what I did. And I thought about different important elements such as being self-aware. Being self-aware is one of four pillars of emotional intelligence. Your self-awareness, your social awareness, your relationship management, and your self-management. Little research led me to many articles that are suggesting a higher level of emotional intelligence is conducive to better psychological and physical well-being. How do you foster emotional intelligence? It's not, it's not thought in school, in the school system. Mm-hmm. Emotional intelligence is from the mid-90s. We grew up with the emotional intelligence research. It's not broadly mainstreamed, right? Mm -hmm. Emotional intelligence training is something that organization keeps for their leaders to help them manage people better. But I believe it's an asset that everybody needs to possess. It's a skill set that everybody needs to possess, especially in this day and age. So that investigation, uh, you know, triggered my creativity, which is another superpower I believe I have. Uh, That creativity to imagine, you know, how things should be done and what are the current inefficiencies? Why is it not working or why I should have never been in this position? Well, let me take that back. Let me rephrase that. I should have been in a position where I'm empowered enough to solve it. I'm a grown man. <laughs> I'm an adult. Mm-hmm. Solving problem is what we do, mm-hmm. right? So I was in a, in a position where I was a victim of, of these mental threats and I couldn't put my hand on what can I do to help to, to, to solve it. Mm-hmm. So long story short, I thought about, you know, attacking this problem by looking at it from the lens of a five-year-old. And I thought about my kid and... I'm like, well, if something is going on, he needs to know that I'm here. He needs to know that he has a support system. But it's not only, you know, from the lenses of a five-year-old. When you have, when you're going through your own experiences, you kind of lose sight of who's there for you and who's not. Add the factor, you know, of shame, of guilt, of us not being empathetic towards the way we feel, Mm -hmm. the stigma and the taboo, the cultural 
taboo, the social determinants, add that to the mix, well, you have isolation. And, and you have isolation that generates loneliness. And loneliness today is recognized as a mental illness. Loneliness is bad, man. Loneliness is as lethal as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Mm-hmm. Loneliness costs a lot of money to American organization, $154 billion, And that's one of 200 mental illnesses recorded. A new one. So that experience was the trigger for the creativity. That experience was really what sparked the interest and put me on a purposeful mission uh, to solve this. I'm already someone that is very passionate about what I do. So now the passion was mixed with purpose and created unlimited supply of energy and, and, and grit, I guess. It's not unlimited, but... What I mean by that is it's been two years, 10 months. I'm still going at it despite all the rejection, despite all the no's that I had. I'm more confident than ever that what we're bringing to market will change lives, will save lives. Mm-hmm. And it's a better solution than what's currently available. It's an intervention method that has been overlooked where disruption needs to happen and innovation will be created. Mm-hmm. what we're bringing to, to market. But it's at the same time the most simplistic thing. We're allowing people to be empathetic to each other in a safe and secure environment. This is at the heart of our, our solution. And um, that empathy, once it's fostered, really uh, stops the deterioration of feelings and emotions that are not addressed. And like I was saying before, it's putting people in that green state where you have your feeling and your emotion acknowledged. You have your feeling and emotion qualified. You can label them. You can either disqualify them, but you can also investigate on how to manage that feeling and to live with it. Right. So that's a long answer to a short question, but I hope I did answer your question. No, absolutely. You definitely did. So what a journey like that you've taken us on in terms of, you know, looking um, at a bird's eye view of, of how you've gotten here from your earlier days and your coping mechanisms and the ways in which you would react to stress to, to how you react to stress now and how you've evolved mentally and emotionally as you've developed this these coping strategies that for you, but also that now you're, you know, building something that will impact many people. You've talked about, you know, in that process, the development and the importance of emotional intelligence, the kind of stigmas attached with mental health that mm-hmm. are leading towards um, huge rates of loneliness and the impact of loneliness. Mm-hmm. And so for going back to like you personally, um, yeah, how has kind of building this uh this really important system, this product, like what are, what are the, the personal impacts and how you see the future now? Is it still, you know, um, quite, quite positive and maybe speak to, you know, your experience as a black man in mm. the current Calgary tech ecosystem and the space that you, that you occupy? Um, yeah, I'll, 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 tr- I'll try to answer that question to the best of my understanding. So I think the biggest piece with anyone is the notion of uh, self-awareness. That is one of the pillars of emotional intelligence, right? I've always thought of myself as, as a person that is very aware of his emotions and where he's at. And that's important for, for, for anyone to identify you know, signals of distress, of potential distress or mental threats. Um, And that notion of self-awareness kind of just grew over the year. And one leads to the other. Once you're aware of where you're at, then you have have to do something about it. You can just like, oh, this is where I'm at, you know, I'm Mm -hmm. sad. Um, You have to take action on it. And then this one speaks to the next pillar of emotional intelligence, self-management, right? Uh, The two others, you know, they're intertwined and they could be incorporated into your coping mechanism, but... Uh, self-management then is how are you investigating and finding ways to address your distress and that mental threat. For me, it, it's definitely a combination of multiple things 
from mindfulness to physical exercise. Mindfulness allowed me to pinpoint the source of my distress or my emotional threat. What is the event that caused me to be discomfortable, uncomfortable, or that caused the discomfort? And what can I do about that event? Is it in my, my capability, in my power to change it? If it's not, what's the solution? Sometime, time, sometime, it's a matter of time. And then there's a solution that presents itself. Uh, if you don't have the capability to do so, then you seek help. For me, it was that mindfulness that allowed me to pinpoint the, the source. And then how do I feel now that I know what's the source? And how do I get better? And this is when I also understood through research, because mental health is very holistic. It's your mental, physical, financial, spiritual, and your fitness, your nutritional. Um, now I understand that my coping mechanism for all this time has been physical exercise. And at the time where I was going through these things, I was not going to the gym uh, because I was just so busy. I had a young young child. I had many projects. I had to look for a job. So going to the gym, you know, took the back seat. So my coping mechanism wasn't part of my daily habits, which allowed this distress to amplify, which allowed the, the, the emotion to, to deteriorate. So throughout this experience, it has been a combination of many different coping mechanisms that is allowing me to go through every waves of stress, every waves of adversity, Right? Every challenge is understanding my relationship to this problem and how can I impact that problem. And then looking at, okay, what can I do? Because now I understand myself. I understand that gym for me is therapy, not to grow muscle. Growing muscle is a result of me giving my 100% in the gym. And, you know, I eat okay, but it, this is not the primary goal. So this is in response to your first observation, your first question. I think everybody needs to develop self-awareness, uh, self-awareness to understand where are they at. And then they have to use a combination of different intervention methods, such as mindfulness, meditation, prayer for those that believe in higher power or have spirituality as, as, as their coping mechanism to help them, you know, identify the, the source of stress and then, you know, find what what will help me feel better? And it may be, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy. It may be having conversation with a loved one. But you, you have to be self-aware and you have to test and try uh, different things in order to manage your mental health. Now, my experience with being a Black founder, uh, it's been very difficult. It's been very difficult because... There's a lot that is playing against the opportunity that I'm chasing. And one of these things are the fact that I have an accounting degree and my experience is in technology sales. And we're in a space where we're really we're talking about something that is very sensitive. We're talking about people's health. Mental health is health. And I think there was a lot of um, um, not distrust, but reluctance into accepting the message coming from the messenger that mm -hmm. the messenger is carrying. Even if my value proposition was evidence-based, it was evidence-based because my concept was validated via the research we conducted with a, a firm out of Ottawa. Mm -hmm. So I first had the idea and then conceptualized what it looked like, what it would need to look like, embedding people in safe relationship, helping them, and protecting their, their conversation and using that real-time sentiment data to drive care pathways. It's, it's what the solution is doing. But before we got to create a single line of code, we take pride in the fact that we, we dug deep into the research. Our interviews were not enough. So we doubled down on the research and could, conducted an ethnographic study uh, by professionals. And this firm has two partners. One is a PhD in psychology and the other one is a master's degree in user experience and interface design. They interviewed CEOs, HR leaders, managers, wellness practitioners, and people like you and I mm -hmm. to understand their relationship with you know, mental health, their expectations, what are the missed opportunities, what, what are the 
ways to improve services, what are their expectation or the unmet expectation. And they took that information and then they looked at different scientific paper and scientific methods such as tiny habit change, behavioral change, emotional agility, nonviolent communication. And all of these scientific methods uh, were leveraged to create the user experience on the platform. Um, this is why I'm saying that my value proposition is science-informed. Mm-hmm. The ethnographic study is a scientific approach of information, uh, information gathering, requirements gathering. And those scientific methods, we are converting them into an AI, right? So a little bit of a secret sauce here. Well, not so much, not so secret anymore. Secret. Right? <laughs> Secrets out. Secrets out. Yeah. Um, a lot of work into understanding and into We did eight months. Adapting. Yeah. We did a yeah. lot of work because yeah. of that imposter syndrome. I know I don't belong. My experience has been very difficult because every time that I would speak, it needs to be on point. I needs to be speaking the truth. It cannot be my opinion. I need to make reference that people can validate. And this has been the core of all the work that we've done two years, for the first two years. It was all about being relevant, mm-hmm. being credible. My value proposition at the time convinced a very experienced set of advisors to be part of that journey. And, and some of them are still with us. One of them is Dr. Andrew Greenshaw from the University of Alberta. He's chair of psychiatry. Uh, Dominira Solve is a partner at Different. He led the research. He's advising us as well. We had a representative from a large corporation that is a CHRO that validated the need for a solution like this in the workplace, right? Mm -hmm. So it's the research and then it's getting affirmation by key stakeholders um, that would help me be relevant and credible on the market because I did not have this credibility Right. I was a I was a black founder of a software startup in mental health. So this has been a lot of work to achieve, you know, being relevant and being able to speak about our value proposition in a way that is referenceable, uh, that is intelligent, but that also speak to the business imperative of customers, of their clients. Those business imperatives are motives for purchase. Um, and how is it going to impact different business drivers that are pressing on the organization, that are impacting the company's culture? So, you know, mental health, yes. Mental illness, yes. Okay, well, why? What should I do about it? This is a question that all organizations across the world had to answer and still need to answer. Well, yeah, well, first of all, you have people showing up at work, not working. We call that presenteeism. You have people taking sick days, but they're not sick. We call that absenteeism. You have long-term and short-term disability claim for many different reasons, work overload, burnout, depression, uh, right? And you have, you know, big culture challenge where employees are not finding belonging at work. And that is churn. It transfers to churn, right? So these we had to speak of how our value proposition are meeting those business imperative in order to be relevant. And, and we achieved that because of the research. We spent time second guessing ourselves, validating that the, the, the features that we're bringing will create a cascade of value for the individual and the organization will reap the benefit. Mm-hmm. Right. And right now, from a health economic perspective, there's a number of research that are supporting that every dollar invested in wellness returns four back to the organization, uh, according to Deloitte. But most importantly, over and above the investment in wellness is the early intervention. The dollar invested in early intervention returns 5.6 instead of four. So organization needs to find ways to be more upstream and be more proactive. And we believe we achieve that. So my experience as a black founder has been, you know, making sure that I show up with the truth, with the truth, uh, despite being, you know, rejected because this happened, Mm -hmm. despite being rejected, not to take it personal, because I believe at my core that we've done the work and people have not. Well, at the time, people have not caught up to the work that we were doing. 
they're catching up to it because we've been saying the same song for the last almost three years in September, right? And now we're seeing people articulating their solution in the same fashion as we are, but it's two different product. Borrowing our language and even some, you know, legit copying us, we're seeing that. So we're back on stealth mode, not talking too much about what we're doing, just making sure we're focused with our clients, Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, success is imminent because our approach has been, um, well, it's a human experience. It started with mine and then it's been an investigative approach that was user-centric, and then it became customer centric through the ethnographic study. So we we focused on you know the people that are um, uh, most impacted by this. Um, and here, I want to speak on on the investment opportunity because the problem in the investment scene is multifaceted. There's a lack of representation. So even from trying to raise an angel round or a family and friend. Let's talk about the family and friend because it's kind of mixed with the angel round. Um, We know that people will invest in who looks like them. Mm -hmm. And that's the sad reality. And family and friend, this is where you will get, you know, most of the money to get started. But when you're a second generation immigrant, what family and friend do you have that will give you $50,000 or even $250,000 to start a project? Go mm-hmm. gamble that money. I'm willing to lose it. Mm-hmm. We don't have that in our network. Mm-hmm. But I've, and I heard stories where founders, you know, just had an idea on a napkin and got out of the meeting with a check. This is not my experience. <laughs> <laughs> not for most. No. This is not my experience. Yeah. I was challenged and second-guessed and asking for validation and asking for proof and all that stuff. Nobody gave me love money. You know what I mean? This is credit cards, man. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we don't all start on equal grounds, that's for sure. Right? But then add that to the fact that only 2% of VC dollars goes to black founders. Mm. I think it's 1% goes to black female founders. Wow. Right. This is a quotable moment right here. Yeah. Hey, look it up. Yeah. <laughs> look it up. This is t- the truth. Mm-hmm. But mix that with the complexity of being in a, in a market that is highly volatile, being in a space where there's a lot of competition, very fragmented. It presents a huge opportunity, but investors were as confused as customers, mm-hmm. not knowing what to invest in, what to buy for their employees. And investors seeing, oh, well, I've seen this before. No, you haven't. but anyway let's not go there what i'm suggesting here is that investors became more conservative more careful with their investments who has been very hard starting from you know let's say 10 yards back only by the mere fact that i'm black money is not supposed to go my way because the people that i'm asking money don't look like me yeah and wanting or not wanting or not accepted or not this is a reality this is the reality of the, uh, you know, early stage investment. You, you, you bet on, on the jockey. Mm-hmm. You bet on the team, on the person that you're going to lend that money to. Mm-hmm. I was not believable. By the virtue of how I look, by the virtue of my background, it didn't matter about my idea. I was not believable. Two years later, it's a different story. <laughs> you know. Not to cast any shade on, on the investment community. I understand that it's their hard-earned dollars. But at the very same time, I met U.S. investors that has, they have that savviness with them. They're ready to go. They'll, you know, they'll buy into your, your idea when it's great. I met people that told me, well, you're not asking for enough money. I would sign you a check, but I would eat your entire round. You need to, well, he said, he's like, you need to ask for more money, increase your valuation, and your revenue projection should be 10x. This is how the U.S. operates. It's a bigger market. It's understandable. So we know like we're a little conservative here. But one thing that needs to change in this market from my perspective as a black founder here, we have to create an investment community that increases the speed and velocity in which they invest. Not only speed, velocity is important because it's the direction of your investment. It's the direction, you know, that your investment, um, not to say segment, but where is that investment going to mm-hmm. what to what demographic that's what i mean by velocity so 
the speed is important because, uh, you know, we are here often, you know, bet we're betting on us and we've made all of the sacrifice to, 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 you know, be full-time founders. And, you know, the investors are looking to build a relationship and they're just dragging the nose. And every time you come back to them with an answer to their previous no, they're looking for, that's, there's one thing that I hate hearing that I don't like hearing from them. Well, you know, when you pitch to me, I'm looking for the lie, blah, 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 right? I'm like, stop looking for the lie. I don't have time to lie to you. I'm presenting facts and evidence. And if this matches your investment thesis and you're daring enough to put your money and your efforts to make this concept a reality will be successful, but stop looking for the lie. We don't have time to lie to you. Mm-hmm. We don't have time. Time is of the essence. Speed to market is key, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, Speed and velocity needs to change in the investment scene. But representation is important as well. We need to find ways to create that wealth for BIPOCs, LGBTQ, women founders. Mm-hmm. We need to have all of these groups as investors. If we don't have them here, bring them from the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> bring them. Calling all. Call it, yeah, call LGBTQ them in. Investors. They'll understand where we're coming from. Mm. They look like us. They'll, you know, the likelihood of us coming out of the conversation with a check is higher. Mm-hmm. When we're looking at the 2% of the VC dollars that goes to black founders, we have to open up the opportunity mm-hmm. and call for reinforcement. <laughs> reinforcement. That's what it takes. It's getting desperate. Getting desperate. Yeah. It's it's sad because there's a lot of you know female founders that I know that are doing amazing work. My chief science officer is from the LGBTQ community. He was doing fantastic work before when he had his startup. I'm grateful to have him because he's part of the team now. But he was still trying to raise money, you know, last year before when we first met, and he should have got funded in my books, mm-hmm. right? And and there's you know BIPOC founders that that are doing tremendous. But the velocity is not there. The speed is not there from our ecosystem. And another another point is uh, they all started behaving the same way if, from my perspective in the last 12 months. Angel investors were asking the same thing a pre-seed investors would be asking. And when you're early stage, you, you know, you're looking for, you know, evidence or signals or, you know, what does the founder and the founder team have? That makes me believe they'll achieve what they're saying. That's the investment thesis. Not letters of intent. Angels, stop asking for that. If you're asking for that, move up to being a pre-seed investor. Uh, pre-seed investors, you know, they'll give the money so that the company realizes their market objective, right? That's what the pre-seed is. And normally mm-hmm. the seed is to grow that revenue projection and to accelerate it. Mm-hmm. So I can understand why, how pre-seed investor would a- ask for letters of intent and some market adoption signal, but angel and even like private investors asking for that stuff, for me, it was mind blowing. I'm like, well, I don't have it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I- I'm asking for your money to, to kind of, you know, see if we can make this happen. So as it has been my experience. Wow. Wow. So there's a lot there. And thanks so much for sharing. And I feel like we could probably go on and continue to talk at length Mm -hmm. about experiences that you've had in that. Probably a lot of people, you know, a lot of BIPOC founders and and people of kind of marginalized or underrepresented communities in in the tech scene or at large have experienced it as well. Uh, But now that we've kind of, you know, basically brought out all the skeletons from the closet, the very biased decision-making among the investor community. And mm-hmm. what, you know, what can we do to improve conditions to encourage more BIPOC foundership or BIPOC investorship? If you have any last thoughts on that, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up after that. Yeah, for sure. I think I touch on most of that in my expose here. Um, not to, you know, I don't want to, bite the hand that is feeding me. I think here in Calgary, Alberta, we have a fantastic dynamic ecosystem, entrepreneurship ecosystem that is booming. I think at a very high level, it was recognized that the only way to foster 
economic growth is through innovation and coming out of the oil and gas sector. And I believe our province has done tremendous work. What I'm suggesting is that the work is not enough. We need to continue on having this dialogue, this conversation. We need to open it up to hear from BIPOCs and underserved entrepreneurs. What are their their challenges and acknowledge their challenges, listen to them and do, do something about it. Find ways to remove biases from the process, which is very hard because you have uh, a lot of different stakeholders involved. I think we've done well and I'm, I'm proud to be in this province and in this city where I'm seeing the entrepreneur, entrepreneurial scene uh, booming. Calgary is, is top, uh, top four, top, uh, number four out of the uh, 10 major cities in, in North America, right? Uh, there's definitely room for us to foster more innovation, create more startups. And, and representation is key once again. There needs to be representation on at all front in the entire hierarchy from the from those who are creating the funds, from those who are are the gatekeeper or not gatekeeper, I'd say advisors to release those funds from the steering committee that are looking at every project and from the investor scene, there needs to be representation mm-hmm. because representation will remove biases. And then speed and velocity. Fail fast. uh, But I like to rephrase that into learn fast. Mm -hmm. Uh, Failing is part of it. We're going to make mistakes along the way, but let's not be scared of the mistake and the failure. Let's see how we can, you know, disrupt or, you know, the CDL has it best, like Creative Destruction Lab. You know, it's really to to foster and drive innovation by accelerating the rate of failure Mm-hmm. but as a mean to learn and innovate, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, and I believe our ecosystem can do better at maybe ingesting more startups and allowing them to test and experiment with corporations that are savvy and progressive. That could be an opportunity for entrepreneurs to really validate whether they should pursue a business opportunity because some business opportunities are not worth per- pursuing. So I acknowledge that. So it's complex, but I think more openness with having this dialogue with the right stakeholders, those who are in position to influence and make those changes, mm-hmm. to have an open dialogue and to execute on the recommendation that is coming from BIPOC founders or underrepresented group, execute on these recommendations. When we're sharing our experience, uh, th- these conversations will, will spark new ideas Right. So, uh, well, you know, thank you for having me and for allowing me to express myself in such a way. I'm hoping that whoever hears, that will be a trigger for them. This conversation is essential. Mm-hmm. Although we have not met the success we believe we deserve or we, we should have, we've been in it for three years and we have signal of market interest. My experience, I hope. My, my hope at this point is that my experience and my journey can inspire other founders that look like me. Not to stop, you know, their journey because of, you know, their inexperience. If you want to venture into the food industry and you don't have, you know, culinary talent, your job is to find the talent that will fill the gap. But if you have a novel solution that answers a problem and you seem to be the only one that, that figured it out, mm-hmm. don't let, don't let you know, your experience stop you. Because the ecosystem is there to generate entrepreneurs, to, mm-hmm. Build, mm-hmm. to build you into what you need to be. And your job is to find the talent that will help you get there. Right. So you carry the torch for the time being. And sometimes you have to be humble and, you know, take a step back and let somebody else lead and find what you do best within this venture and do that with all your might. And in doing that, more superpowers will be unlocked within yourself. And this opportunity will help you grow into a different type of professional. This is what the entrepreneurial opportunity is. Right. You can be an entrepreneur in any type of segment because you've seen a problem that is unaddressed or that is addressed inefficiently. 
but your job is to be creative enough to find the solutions, uh, you know, and the team that will help you solve that problem. So thanks for having me. Yeah. It, it was yeah. a great conversation. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. Uh, so I totally agree with you. You know, let's reduce the barriers to entry for uh, all of the people that we've been addressing through this podcast and continue to have conversations, right? And mm -hmm. let people dream and, you know, yeah, yeah let's, 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 continue to enact on these values that we see more and more people are talking about like equity right like what equity, does that look yeah. like let's yeah. let's continue to talk about equity and and diversity and, and representation and inclusion and thank you so much for for spearheading that in just you know being a part of this conversation and and letting everything out and sharing your experience i think it'll be you know really interesting to hear what what comes of it potentially. So I'm yeah. hoping that people listen and where do people reach you if they have any follow-up questions or on LinkedIn, uh, they can on my LinkedIn, Jefferson rock rock with a C. That's the main social media that I use. Okay. Yeah. Great. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, I'll be voting for you if you ever run for prime minister. So. <laughs> Not a chance. <laughs> if you haven't already, visit rainforestab.ca and sign the Rainforest Social Contract. Become part of the inclusive, silo-busting, sector-agnostic, all-industry, open-sourced, ego-shrinking, ecosystem-building, entrepreneur-focused, wide-open, social barrier-smashing community known as Rainforest Alberta. This episode was brought to you by New Idea Machine. NIM helps new software developers, UI UX designers, and product managers gain mentored hands-on industry experience. And at the same time, we provide companies with risk-free tech talent. Definitely a win-win-win situation. Visit newideamachine.com for more information. Music for the show was created by Tony Deldegan. Please be sure to share this episode with everyone you know. Also, don't forget to come by and say hi at the next Rainforest event. Let us know what you think of this podcast. If you're interested in being either a host, sponsor, or a guest of the show, send me an email at rainforestpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>